This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation? Where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission. At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Hey, Breaking Math fans. We're finally back with a new episode. We just also wanted to say that we recorded an episode that unfortunately we cannot show you. Um, we didn't press record on both of the sources, unfortunately. It was a great episode. It was supposed to be a part two to the latest episode about graphics. Um, we're still going to be continuing that series, but um, we had an interview with game designer Nate Perkypile. We talked all about his um, innovative game mechanics and all sorts of different things. It was a, it was just a, a shame that, uh, you know, the episode is lost. But um, we talked about his game, The Axis Unseen, which you could sort of pre-order on Steam now. Um, it has all kinds of new uh, innovations and, and it has some uh, things like, you know, new music. Uh, the music being here right now is in that, um, is from the game. So apologies to Nate Perky Pile for losing the episode. Apologies to our fans for the long delay. And without further ado, it's time for the latest Breaking Math episode. Sabina Hassenfelder is a physicist who breaks down concepts in physics on her YouTube channel and has recently written a book, Existential Physics, which breaks down many obscure concepts in physics and discusses when unnecessary and confusing assumptions are often made. I'm Sophia, and this is Breaking Math, and with me I have on Sabina. Uh, Sabina, nice to have you on today. Hi, Sophia. Good to talk to you. All right, so real quick, um, uh, uh, your uh, YouTube channel... Um, uh, do you want to uh, plug that really quickly before we um, move on to your book? Yeah, sure. Uh, I have a YouTube channel, which is called Science Without the Gobbledygook. And I talk about, broadly speaking, everything that I'm interested in in science. But naturally, since I'm a physicist, I talk about physics a lot. Cool. So what, I guess, um, drove you to uh, write this book? I, I think the major reason I was writing this book is that I was kind of a little bit depressed, uh, really, after my first book, because really the first book is a community criticism. I'm pointing out what's going wrong in the foundations of physics. And um, a lot of the time when I come across headlines in the popular science media that address problems in my own research area, then... The only thing I do is to say, no, you can't do this. No, this is wrong. No, this doesn't work. So I, I come across as being terribly destructive, uh, cynical. And it's kind of not how I want to be. So I wanted to say, yes, physics sometimes tells you there are things which you can't do. You can't send information faster than the speed of light, for example. You can't make negative mass, no matter what the headlines say. But it also tells you that some things are possible. 
And uh, I collected some of those uh, examples in my book that I hope are a little bit surprising. Um, ideas that have come out of physics that tell you something big about the universe, which you might not have expected. Well, cool. So real quick on the on the whole front of um, I, one, one of the videos that I, um, I first was uh, uh, became acquainted with um, your channel and stuff through was the um, the, the delayed quantum razor experiment, which debunks a uh, seeming um, it debunks the fact that it seems like the past is erased. Um, and I feel like that kind of um, uh, do you want to talk about that and then uh, dive into um, some of the concepts in your book? Yeah, sure. Um, so the quantum razor experiment, this video came about because I was trying to understand this experiment. It was actually for a paper that I was working on and I was looking up the literature on it and I was also looking at the videos on YouTube um, in, in the hope of getting an insight and it just didn't make sense to me. I was I was trying to do the maths and I was writing down the equation and I was like, I think those equations don't say what, what the people on YouTube say uh, they mean. And so this is wh why I ended up doing um, the video. So um, basically, what one does in the quantum eraser experiment is that one starts out with the double slit experiment. So in the double slit experiment, it has this, it has this pe peculiar property that um, if you send individual photons onto the double slit, then they can interfere with themselves. Um, so you see an interference pattern which builds up from the individual photons uh, on the screen. But if you try to measure which of the two slits the photon went through, then the interference pattern vanishes. And what one does in the in the quantum eraser experiment um, is that instead of instead of using um, only one photon, one creates an entangled pair of photons. And um, on on the one side, um, for the one particle in the entangled pair, one does the double slit experiment. And for the other one, um, one does a complicated other measurement. And then to make a long story short, um, the idea is that you can somehow erase the information about which slit the photon went through after you've already measured it. So um, that seems pretty pretty mind-bending um, because it seems like first you go and measure which slit the photon went through. So you should have destroyed the interference pattern. But then when you measure um, on, on one of the entangled photons of the pair, what happens, then you can somehow recover this interference pattern. And so this is why people say you can, you can kind of erase what you've already done. So at the time that you had um, released the quantum eraser video, yes. I, I, at the end, um, you say that um, uh, no one seems to be explaining um, this interpretation of the quantum eraser experiment, except for, I can't remember who you mentioned at the end of the video, but you said you could trust them on the quantum oh, stuff. Right. It, it was referring to a blog post from Sean Carroll which um, I only found after I'd done the video or after I'd, uh, you know, written the script and everything. And someone pointed out, um, look, he's, he, he's, he's written about this here. Gotcha. And um, so the way that you uh, reinterpreted, uh, it seems like you just kind of, you, you take information that um, is unnecessary out, which is like your whole style, right? Yes. Um, so, so what I'm trying to say in the video is that to understand the quantum eraser, you don't have to do anything to the to the past. Uh, what you basically do when you tag those photons by the slit that they came through, um, you're you're creating 
groups of photons, which you can later use to sample them into uh, sets, each of which will give you an interference pattern. But if you combine them, you don't get an interference pattern because they, um, the maxima and minima of, of the two sets, they are um, complements to each other. So if you, if you combine them, then you get what you actually observe um, in, in, the, in, in the double slit experiment if you know which slit the photon went through. So it, so it, so it all fits together. Interesting. Oh uh, yeah, it that that uh, that makes um total se- uh, sense to me, especially because uh, I I remember reading um books on quantum physics and stuff from uh, when I was a kid um that didn't explain what measurement uh, was that it was a physical process. They kind of uh, made it seem like you know like there's this other world of um, observation and stuff like that, which of course to like um, anybody who'd studied physics for a few years would, would be like pretty clear, but to somebody who's unacquainted with physics, like, you know, like a kid studying just um, a book on physics, um, these uh, confusing concepts can, you know, wedge their way into your mind in specific ways. So um, let's uh, move on to your uh, book. What, what, what I guess is your favorite chapter or a chapter you want to uh, talk about the most? Uh, well, of course I like them all. <laughs> You know, it's like it's like asking me which which of your children is your favorite one. <laughs> what am I supposed to answer to this? I, I think for me, the most surprising one um, has been the one about um, the question whether the universe uh, can think, because I totally expected the answer to be no, uh, but it didn't quite work out the way I wanted it to. Interesting. Um, do you want to go into some of that? Um... Yeah, so um, there is a standard argument that physicists make about why the universe can't think. Um, and uh, maybe maybe I should step back a bit and uh, explain why you m- may consider that the universe can think to begin with. Um, it's because if you look at the distribution of galaxies from a really far distance in, in one of the galaxy surveys that have been made, then you'll, you'll find that the galaxies are distributed um, in, in filaments with uh, clusters, and it kind of superficially looks a little bit like the connectome of the human brain, where you have uh, neurons uh, connected by um axons uh, and so on. So that brings up the question, like if we have this structure in the human brain and it seems to be kind of similar to the universe, then maybe the universe can also think. Um, Unfortunately, if you go only by the physics that we know and like already, the answer is no. And uh, to make a long story short, um, the reason is that the universe is just too big. It, and we know that the speed of light is finite, um, and the universe is uh, some tenths of billions of light years from one side to the other. So it takes a long time to send a signal from one side to the other. Um, so even if the universe was thinking, um, it, it can't think very much. So, yes, so this is... and I, this is kind of related um, to the concept of uh, speed in, um, uh, in neurons, um, uh, like the axons, correct? Um, like, um, what is it? Uh, cerebral neurons have a speed of something like um, three hundred, um, like hundred meters per second. The the skull is something like twenty uh, centimeters across. So, so, what is that? A frequency of something like two hundred fifty hertz. Um, 
that like you know like uh, that uh, that uh, a neuron could go to the back and forth of right of the mind so what so what you're saying is like for the universe uh, for th for the universe to be able to coordinate um, all its thoughts with one another it would need a very extended yes, time that's span. right and, and, and we're, we're talking more than trillions uh, of years but the universe has only been around for about 14 billion years uh, and it has an additional problem which is that it's expanding and the expansion is actually speeding up uh, which makes it more difficult um, to communicate from one side uh, to the other because the galaxies are moving apart from each other. So from here on, uh, it's just going downhills. So, um, yeah, so, so the problem is basically that the speed of light is finite. Um, and even though it's very large compared to the um, speed by which our brain sends around uh, signals, it doesn't make up for the huge size of the universe. Okay, so so this is for what standard physics is concerned, so to speak. Um, but I've been working for a long time uh, on quantum gravity. So this is the missing combination between quantum mechanics and gravity, which, which we're still working on. And um, one of the things that has come out of this line of research is that our notion of locality might not quite be correct. So what do I mean by locality? Uh, what we mean by locality in physics is that um, if you want to interact with uh, something, uh, loosely speaking, it has to be nearby. Um, so if you, know, if you want to send a parcel, it has to go um, some way from um, the sender to the receiver. It can't just disappear into a portal and, and suddenly reappear somewhere else. And, uh, that's something which we don't observe. And we're pretty sure it doesn't exist, at least at the sizes that we have been able to look at. Uh, and that goes down to um, elementary particles. In the most extreme case, uh, it's being tested at the Large Hadron Collider, and it's about um, 10 to the minus 20 meters or something is, is the typical distance which they test there. Um, but if you go to even shorter distances, something like 10 to the minus 5 uh, th uh, centimeters, this is where you reach the Planck scale, um, then it's, it's far less clear what is with this notion of locality. And um, there are some people who have suggested that actually if you go down to this very short distance scales, then there should be basically teeny tiny wormholes that would be connecting the universe uh, one and to the other everywhere. Um, we, we, and there would be a lot of those connections. And um, now let me be clear, um, th those are so small that we can't go through them and even the elementary particles can't go through them, but they would still connect the geometry of the universe with itself. And so almost like, it, um, it, it, it seems almost like, um, like knitting the, um, the tangent bundles and um, stuff like that in um, in uh, just the ge geometry of the space-time kind of? Like almost yeah, it's, like knitting it's, together it's not, fibers? It's not the tangent bundle. I mean, you have to, do you have to, if you want it to be differentiable, you have to make sure that the tangent bundle supports the, the differentiable geometry. Uh, but most of the time people treat those, it's called a non-local link, as something which just doesn't fit to the geometry. Um, if you want to make it more sophisticated, um, then I guess you would have to change the topology of the space-time. 
Gotcha, but, gotcha. Yeah. Um, so, but but normally the way that people think about it is that the entire universe is just um, a big network that, on those large scales that we observe, approximates um, a manifold to good to good accuracy. And, and this is why we can, in Einstein's theory, um, use a four-dimensional Riemannian differentiable manifold. Uh, but really, if you look at short distance scales, then you have all those non-geometric, uh, non-local connections. And um, so this seeming um, need that you need to be close to something to interact with it might just disappear if you go to very, very short, short distance scales. And it's something that the universe might be able to do. And um, this is something which we just uh, can't rule out uh, based on everything we know right now, because we don't actually know what this theory of quantum gravity looks like. Um, there are other reasons that people have put forward why this notion of locality that we currently use might not be entirely correct. The black hole information loss problem is one of them. Then there's um, quantum mechanics, the measurement problem. Uh, you, you already alluded to this. So th there are a number of uh, reasons why the locality that we observe seems a little bit suspicious. And um, this is why I think uh, it's, it's possible that down there at those very short distance scales, the universe is actually much more connected than it appears to us. And now, does this mean that the universe can think? Well, not necessarily, but it, it would probably mean that it has enough connections to do at least as much thinking as the human brain. And I'm still trying to <laughs> to figure out what to make of this. Interesting. Um, yeah, that... Um... That is fascinating. So you talk about these, um, you just talked about these wormholes uh, being uh, so small that even elementary uh, particles um, couldn't go through. So would this mean that if um, this neural structure, um, you know, uh, did exist and these were the connections uh, between them, that whatever thoughts this neural structure had um, would be inaccessible to us, basically? Well, we, we actually do measure the properties of space-time, um, for example, when we measure gravitational waves. So gravitational waves are not themselves particles made of matter, but it's also not radiation. Instead, what we measure is we measure the influence of those space-time perturbations on the normal matter. So uh, in principle, you know, if you if you want to stretch your mind, uh, it's it's possible in principle that there be some uh, configurations of those non-local links that um, might become observable, you know, if they cluster enough, basically, uh, you could see an influence of this on uh, the normal matter that we have. Uh, but to be fair, we, we don't really know a terrible lot about them. Interesting. Um, so in, and uh, what, what kind of influence, um, do, do you want to go into what kind of influence, you know, that you're talking about specifically? Well, it's all speculation. Uh, there's, uh, so let me be clear, there's absolutely no evidence that this is correct. Uh, but I mean, there are some people who um, have argued that such non-local connections could actually have an effect uh, quite similar to dark matter uh, in the sense that um, those non-local links would basically multiply and distribute the gravitational influence of a mass. So if you if you think about some kind of 
um, metaclump, you know, like a star, something that creates a gravitational field. And uh, you have those non-local connections that start close by the thing, but they connect it to a different place that might be very, very far away from the star. Then at this far away place, you would now feel the stronger gravitational field from close by the star. So the effect of um, the distribution of those non-local links could be that uh, the gravitational attraction of some kind of source doesn't fall off as quickly as um, general relativity would predict. And that's pretty much exactly what we see uh, when we look at galaxies or galaxy clusters, which is normally attributed to dark matter. So now um, this sounds kind of good at first uh, sight, uh, so to speak. Uh, but um, if you think about it a little um, deeper, then you're really just replacing the distribution of dark matter with the distribution of those non-local links. And in the end, you, you don't really gain anything. Uh, it doesn't really help you uh, with anything. And it brings in some new problems. So I'm not terribly excited about it. Um, but it's certainly something that people have put forward. Um, I myself wrote a paper about this, like, I, I don't know, 10 years ago. So I can hardly remember what's in the paper. But uh, I was trying to address um, the possibility that uh, energy can diffuse through those non-local links. And uh, that would basically have the effect that particles uh, would lose energy as they travel. So you, you see some kind of um, slowing down of highly energetic particles, and this is something which you can look for. Uh, it's not been seen, um, but um, those are some possible effects. Interesting. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's it's all very, it seems all very strange when you get um, to that kind of, I mean, it's, it's almost like a cliche at this point to say that, like, you know, it's strange when large and small scales interact, but um, it kind of just reminds me also of um, the uh, stress energy tensor, the stress energy tensor being a combination of, for our audience, um, the energy density um, at a point or um, shear force or um, pressure um, in a, any specific plane. And it's a four by four tensor and it's used in um, the Einstein um, general theory of uh, gravitation. And it always struck me that, you know, at the smallest scales, you have these atoms bouncing off of one another, which really create the basis for pressure. But yeah, just, um, just, just to add on and say that um, I think it's um, that all sounds very fascinating. Uh, so now let's move on from. So that was uh, perhaps the most surprising chapter. Um, and is it, it unless it's the same answer? Um, do you have a chapter that you did that was perhaps the most technically difficult um, to get through? Uh, definitely the first one, uh, because um, so the, the first chapter is the one about the question whether the past still exists. And this is kind of this is a standard argument, which you find uh, in, in pretty much all textbooks on special relativity. Um, but but it's really hard to explain without writing down equations. And I've tried to do it mostly in words so that you also you'd still be able to follow it in the audio version, but I heavily rely on um, space-time diagrams, and uh, I hope it kind of <laughs> came across, uh, but this was definitely challenging. I can maybe add something to the stress energy tensor since you mentioned this. Um, this is actually the way that it works with those uh, non-local sources. You you change the influence of the stress energy tensor. You, you just you spread it out, um, basically. 
And I, and actually, it's quite interesting that you brought up the question like, uh, what's with the elementary particles? Normally, the stress energy tensor that we um, use in general relativity is considered to be a kind of an average. Um, it, it, it's not really something uh, about the elementary particles. And now, as you certainly know, Einstein's field equations are nonlinear. Um, so taking an average of the source uh, isn't quite as trivial as it sounds. Um, so strictly speaking, we're not even sure that we're solving the right equations when we're doing cosmology. Oh, that's kind of fascinating in its own right. I mean, yeah, cosmology seems kind of fascinating too from the, 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 the uh, like, um, I guess um, here, here's a question that um, perhaps uh, you'd be able to answer just uh, speaking of um, this uh, uh, sort of cosmology. So so I, I've looked at, um, you know, diagrams of the past, you know, they have these different epochs that have different rates of expansion, right? Mm -hmm. um, so I was... Um, I've always wondered um, what what what. Um, let me let me see if I can phrase this. Is it possible that is it's uh, smooth expansion that's being uh, distorted at points um, in some uh, strange way? Mm, you mean when you cross over from one epoch to another? Ah, uh, yes, yeah. When you cross over from uh, one epoch to another, like. Um, okay. Uh, well, so I guess one thing I should say is that um, in general relativity, you are free to choose your time coordinate. Um, so technically, there are infinitely many choices of time coordinates that you could make. Uh, none of them is really any better or worse than the than the other. Often, the time coordinate that, that physicists choose uh, is what's called the co-moving time. Uh, that means it, it, it moves with the matter. So it's like the proper time uh, of the matter. But of course, this is, in, if you're doing cosmology, you're talking about uh, a homogeneous distribution of matter in the entire universe, which is, of course, not strictly speaking correct. And um, if you do this, um, then you have those rather artificial looking sudden transitions from one epoch to another when, um, you know, matter takes over um, over radiation or inflation stops or something like this. But uh, if, if you were to look at this more realistically with inhomogeneities, um, then those transitions would, would smooth out. Interesting. Um, yeah, I always find that I always find that fascinating. Um, I feel like when you're dealing with um, speed of light kind of stuff, and it doubly so cosmology, you have that kind of like uh, effect where like almost like the subject matter is slipping away from you as you study it. I get the same feelings I've, when I've studied um, the fluid dynamics equations a few times. <laughs> So I guess I want to ask you too, um, is there anything about your specific background um, that led you to, um, you told you told a little bit about the um, the, the factors that led you to wrote your uh, previous book and how, um, you, how the experience uh, from that led you to write um, this book, but is there anything from your career uh, specifically, either be it an event or a general progression that led you to be fascinated in, I guess, these kind of questions of I guess, I, I, guess, I guess, would you call that um, scientific ontology? Yeah, um, I guess it's because, um, so I originally didn't study physics, I studied mathematics. And um, I did this for like um, three, four years or something. But I, you know, I, I, I really love mathematics. The problem was I, I, I loved all of it. Like it, it was all great. Uh, but then you come to a point where you have to make a decision, like which mathematics do you focus on? And um, I decided I, I would focus on um, that part of mathematics, which was good to describe nature. And that naturally led me into physics. But, but I've always um, been fascinated by the question, how much of nature can we describe 
by mathematics? How much can it do for us? And um, you find this in several places uh, in my new book. Um, so I partly wrote this book to remind myself of uh, why I was interested in that question and why I find it so fascinating that physics can tell us all those things, which we in 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 a very concrete way pretty much deduce from mathematics. Yeah, we talk a little bit um, in our podcast, actually quite frequently in our podcast, um, and uh, specifically um, we did um, episode four of our podcast about the this um, interesting relationship between the physical world and the mathematical, I guess, realm. You have physical like physical uses of math that aren't useful for uh, for much long after, but then sometimes you have discoveries in math, discoveries in physics, which um, end up um, in um, mathematics or like lead to discoveries in mathematics. I mean, you I mean even you see this a ton with uh, biology and computing to just give like I guess a middle ground type of example. It it is fascinating too because I remember, I think I read somewhere about um uh the incomputability of the three body system given a like a a finite amount of um space or something like that i can't remember exactly what it was physics can be described by mathematics um so is there anything that leads you to believe that there are um, some physics that can't be described um by mathematics because it seems to me that uh, mathematics would be uh, just um just a logic a logical set of observations that you apply to other observations, I guess. And it seems like if those observations are uh, consistent with any set of rules, and then there would be some set of mathematics to explain them. So, yes, this is a very uh, common argument uh, to make, that if there's any kind of pattern uh, that we observe, then there has to be mathematics to describe it. It's, it's almost tautologically true, like the thing that we call a, call a pattern, that, that is already mathematics. I have absolutely no reason to think that there's any observation um, in in nature, in general, not just in physics in particular, that cannot be described by mathematics. Uh, but I've entertained the thought, uh, if it's possible to do science without mathematics, and uh, maybe somewhat disturbingly, disturbingly for you, um, I come to the conclusion you can uh, conceivably do it. Um, that's because if you if you think about it, um, what, what we do in in many cases is that we use mathematics as kind of a middleman. We um, extract a pattern from one system uh, from our observations, and then we use another system. For example, it could be a computer, but it could also be a direct simulation. Um, we use this other system um, to help us make a prediction for the first system. And uh, in principle, um, you can take out mathematics as the middleman. You can just try to find two systems that kind of mimic each other, um, where one is simpler and helps you to make a prediction for the more complicated one. So I think you can do this. Um, it, to some extent, you could say we we are already doing this in, in, in a research area that's called quantum simulation. Um, so quantum simulations, you can use fairly complicated condensed matter systems to try and mimic uh, the behavior of um, elementary particles. You, every once in a while, you, you see this in the headlines, and the headline writers frequently get it, get it wrong. Um, they, they'll be talking about the discovery of some new kind of particle, but it's actually a, a particular excitation in some kind of material. So it, it's called a 
a quasi-particle, not a fundamental particle, but uh, on some level, mathematically, they um, they behave uh, the same way. Um, so, so it's it's quite exciting, and uh, you know, you, you could think that maybe one day you could just use some custom design condensed matter system to actually simulate uh, what's going on in an elementary particle uh, collision, and you you don't actually need the mathematics in between. That reminds me of um, a short story that I read by, um, I want to say, like uh, Arth- uh, uh, Isaac Asimov or Arthur Z. Clarke, where there's a society far in the future that um, where, where this person um, uh, decides to write down a problem. It's like 35 times 73 and solves it on a chalkboard and everyone is amazed because everybody's used to carrying these calculators around them. And somebody asks, wait, is that true every time? And then at the end, um, the, they end up um, uh, trying to use um, humans as uh, guidance computers for missiles. It's some kind of political point that I forget exactly what it is. It's a very old story. But um, yeah, that is a fascinating um, idea. Um, especially, It reminds me of a little bit of an experiment that I read from a few years ago where liquid uh, helium uh, was being used to study black holes. Specifically, like sound waves or something were being sent into um, swirls, um, eddies, uh, something like that. Um, yeah, so that is fascinating, and it even has the uh, property of mathematics that mathematics is a uh, simplification of the real world in many extents. You know, I mean, it's just that whole old argument of the Platonic ideal versus whatever you want to call that. Yeah, the the superfluid helium is actually an example of a, a quantum simulation. It's more specifically known as analog gravity. So uh, analog, as in it's it's an analogy, uh, not um, you know analog as opposed to digital. I mean, you could. I mean, it couldn't even make the argument that um, no mathematics has ever been used in physics if you wanted to get very strange in it. So, for example, if we simulate the system, like let's say we want to know what happens to a star under certain conditions. I don't know some kind of physical experiment. We do it in a in a quantum uh, simulation that uh, simulates it with a high degree of precision. We're still going to have some opinions about this information. There had to be a reason why we came up with the information in the first place. This that, that this is just the way in which we um, use uh, physics is just to explain it, and that perhaps mathematics is our convoluted current way of explaining it. Yeah, I, I think that's one way um, to look at it. Um, though I, I guess it's arguably true. Like, for example, if you look at something that we would do in numerical general relativity, we put the whole thing uh, on a computer. Uh, and uh, the computer solves some kind of differential equation, um, basically. But you could also look at the computer itself as a system that's just, you know, in some sense, being mapped to the other system. Um, I would still say that it's also mapped to some mathematical structure. Um, so it, it, the mathematics is there uh, somehow, uh, but the question is, do you actually need it? And and then you could get even like more um like you have get further pedantic with it I suppose and um or then argue that, that you know the physicist or the that the history of physics um itself is the the material that um physical the, that the mathematics is made of so that there's not actually a separation uh, between the two um in, in in such a sense but I feel like at that level you're getting too um almost fine grained. Yeah, yeah. I guess most physicists would would kind of say it's the other way around. It's not that the math is made of the physics, but it's that the physics is made of the math, um, if that makes sense. But yeah, I mean, it gets very philosophical at this point, I suppose. I'm kind of out of my depth there, I'm afraid. I guess uh, we'll move on um, to... 
is uh, do copies of us uh, exist? Yeah, sure. Um, so the question whether copies of us exist uh, comes up in this idea of the multiverse, uh, which has been kind of popular in the foundations of physics in the past uh, one, two decades. Um, there, are def- there are several different types of uh, multiverses. Uh, Brian Greene has written a book about it in which he lists nine, but um, I, I think I'll not go through the whole list. I'll just tell you the ones that you're most likely to have heard of. Um, I guess the best known one is the many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics. Um, So normally um, the way that quantum mechanics is taught to students, um, the story has it that in quantum mechanics, we predict probabilities for measurement outcomes. And uh, we predict those by the use of uh, what's called a wave function. So the wave function contains all those possibilities um, for example, if you're measuring one, one, one particle, just to keep things simple, and the particle either pops up on the left side of the screen or the right side of the screen, then the wave function might tell you, well, it's 50, 50% left, 50% right. But then the moment you measure the particle, um, the probability jumps to 100, 0. Um, and uh, in the standard interpretation, you will then go and update the wave function. So it's called the update of the wave function, sometimes the reduction of the wave function or the collapse of the wave function. It's all the same thing. Um, So now in the many worlds interpretation, um, the story has it that, uh, no, you don't update the wave function. Both of these measurement outcomes actually happen, but each of them happens in a separate universe. So in this case, you've split the universe into two. And uh, this basically happens all the time and everywhere, um, depending on how many possible outcomes an experiment has. Um, you get uh, more or less of those uh, universes. Um, that, that makes for a lot of universes very, very quickly. Um, so that's the many world, uh, many worlds interpretation. Um, there's also a, a specific theory for the beginning of our universe, which is called eternal inflation. Um, in eternal inflation, um, our universe is created from a fluctuation in a quantum field. Um, but the thing is that there isn't only one of those fluctuations that can make a universe. There, there are infinitely many, so there are constantly universes being created. So there are lots of other uh, universes. And then um, to add a final one, it's the string theory landscape. Um, so in, in this string theory landscape, there are different combinations of uh, the fundamental constants of nature. Um, so in, for each of them, you, you can have uh, a different universe. Um, and so um, what happens uh, in in those universes, like t- take, for example, um, the, the many worlds. Um, so each time a quantum measurement happens or you make a quantum measurement, um, so quantum measurements don't actually need an apparatus. I should have said this, um, you know, just if the particle hits a wall, um, this will also collapse the wave function or split the universe, uh, depending on which way you look at it. Um, so... Um, so now there are two versions of you, uh, the one in which the particle hit the left side of the screen and uh, another one in which it hit the right side of the screen. And uh, in your brain, there are constantly quantum processes going on uh, and those could have different outcomes. Um, and so every time you kind of make a decision in which a quantum process was involved, which um, we, we don't really know how much they are involved, but it's just for the sake of the argument, assume it is involved, then there are now several different versions of, of you. 
and uh, each of them has made a different decision and continues to live their life uh, in a different way. And uh, similarly, in the in, in in eternal inflation, where you have all those different big bangs, um, those universes, some of those elementary particles are a tiny little bit different. Um, so you're pretty much the same person that um, you're in this universe, except that, I don't know, there's a tiny little difference in your genetic code and that that will lead you to um, choose a different profession. Maybe you're not making a podcast. Um, I don't know. May maybe you're into writing books or something like this. The problem with all those other universes that you have in the different versions of multiverses um, is that we can't observe them. And uh, it's not just that it's difficult and we haven't yet been able to do it. Um, it's impossible even in principle. Um, like, for example, in the many words interpretation, the whole point about splitting the universe is um, that you don't see the other outcome of the experiment. Um, so you don't measure it. Um, so why do physicists believe that those other universes actually exist? Well, it's because they show up in their mathematics. So basically they say, well, I have this big piece of mathematics and um, some of what I see in my mathematics corresponds to what uh, we actually do observe. Therefore, I deduce everything I see in my mathematics also has to exist. And it's this last uh, step, which um, I think is not a particularly good conclusion. But I mean, if you want to, to. You can you can believe that those other universes exist. It's not that there are any observations that speak against their existence either. So um, I would say um, this is, as my friend Tim Palmer put it, an ascientific uh, belief. Um, if you want to, you can believe in those um, other universes with copies of you. Um, but you shouldn't think that science actually delivers evidence for it. Interesting. So uh, what led you, by the way, um, to uh, start studying uh, mathematics? Um, you said you started with mathematics. Did you always have an interest in mathematics? Well, yeah, kind of. I, I was always good at maths. Um, I think that's where it came from. Uh, my mother, I should say, she is, she's now retired, but she was a um, high school teacher for math, uh, maths and biology, uh, I should probably add. So um, the physics didn't come from there. Oh, interesting. Um, my, my mother was also uh, both a math teacher and a biology teacher. <laughs> um, <laughs> all right, I guess uh, a final, uh, a final question. Um, your epilogue, uh, I love the title, um, What's the Purpose of Anything Anyway? Um, I know it's the epilogue, so it kind of summarizes the book, so it's probably not um, not summarize the book, but, you know, kind of is a closer to the book. But um, did you want to talk at all about that? Well, yeah, so, so in, in the epilogue, I, I try to put forward my, my own thoughts about uh, what's the meaning of life, what's the purpose of uh, anything anyway, and um, one of the one of the points that I'm trying to get across is that I think it's not really a question that science can possibly answer. Uh, meaning uh, or purpose of our lives is something that every, everyone has to find for themselves. And um, you know, if you if you ask me what's what what I think uh, the meaning of my life is, what's the purpose? Uh, I would put this into um, science communication. Uh, which makes a lot of sense to me. Um, I explain other people what I found in the foundations of physics, and uh, that gives meaning to my life. I think it's a great thing, honestly, as a that you as a physicist um, are putting um, that uh, that view forward. 
Yeah, Existential Physics, A Scientist's Guide to Life's Biggest Questions, uh, is a book that's all about, you know, what it says on the title and what we talked about today. I recommend that y'all buy it. Um, it's a very uh, fun book. It's uh, it's uh, big enough to, like, um, have you, uh, you know, spend quite a bit of time on it, but not uh, where it's, like, either intimidating or... So, uh, Sabina, any uh, final remarks? No, that were really, really good questions. Uh, it's great to talk to you. Awesome. So yeah, check out um, uh, her book. Check out her channel, um, uh, Science Without the Gobbledygook. Um, and um, keep listening to Breaking Math. We never know how to actually finish the show on this program. We just kind of let it end. <laughs> <laughs>